So glad that you're here. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church, and I am really glad that you're here this morning. I have to tell you, I felt like as I was preparing today, um, as I was preparing this message, I felt a little bit like, you know when you're at Qdoba, and um, you, you're, get, you're ordering a burrito, and they keep stuffing all the stuff in it, and it all looks good, right? And then they get to the end, and they're trying to wrap it all up, but you're afraid all the stuff's gonna come out because you got too much stuff in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody, anybody with me there saying amen? Yeah, so that's what I felt like with this message, like except for instead of delicious chicken and guacamole on the inside, it's all this great stuff that I've written and the uh, wrapper, the tortilla is a 30 minute wrapper. And so um, I'm gonna try to, uh, we're, we're just gonna go, we're just gonna go. Acts chapter five is where we're gonna be and uh, let's just go for it, all right? All right we, we got an agreement? Okay. Uh, in 1939, 1939, it looked inevitable that uh, Great Britain would be drawn into the global conflict that we now know as World War II. And the government was looking for ways to get the British citizens to kind of keep that stiff upper lip that the Brits are known for, you know, to just go about their business, not worry about the threat of impending air raids, and not worrying about the Germans coming on a blitzkrieg. Uh, and so they started printing these posters in the summer of 1939. Uh, you've probably recognized this, keep calm and carry on. Uh, for about two weeks in 1939, they printed two and a half million of these posters that were, the intention was that they would be displayed all around London and, and even in the countryside, places that were maybe susceptible to going to war to keep people uh, firmly on track. But they printed them for about two weeks, did two and a half million of them, and they very rarely got displayed, actually. In fact, within a year, it was thought all of them were recycled uh, because there was a huge paper shortage during the war. And so they were recycled to be made into other things that had more military significance and uh, they were thought to be gone. And so it's amazing because you know this, right? You've seen this poster, you've seen some, some, some semblance of this. Amazing that in one year, 1939, that a phrase could take such a hold on the British people as to have carried on now, uh, what are we, 80 some years later, right? Well, not exactly. You see, because all of these posters that were thought to be destroyed, this phrase basically dropped out of the lexicon for years and years, in fact, until the very beginning of this century, in about 2000, when someone found one of these originals stuffed onto a shelf in a used bookstore in Alnwick in the UK. And uh, they bought it and started reprinting them. And then uh, it gained even more significance in 2012 when someone brought 15 of the original posters onto the BBC show uh, Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and so this woman, I guess her father had been part of the Ministry of Information and she found these posters and so then all of a sudden it took off and it got used by uh, endless companies, websites for advertising purposes, teams for their own branding purposes and countless pastors looking for a sermon illustration. Um, <laughs> But regardless of its popularity and how it's been used, keep calm and carry on is exactly what we see the early church doing in the book of Acts. And so we're in week five of this year-long series called Sent. And last week in Acts chapter four, we saw the very beginning of the persecution of the church from Jewish leadership. Two leaders of this, move, of this Jesus movement, guys named Peter and John, had been arrested, uh, brought in front of the Sanhedrin or the ruling court of the day. And they were threatened, they were let go, but they were threatened not to go talk about uh, Jesus anymore. They said, don't go talking about that name anymore. But in response to those threats, what we saw last week was the church prayed for boldness 
And they continued to do exactly what they were already doing. They were teaching, uh, healing, caring for the poor, basically bringing God's kingdom about from heaven to earth uh, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Well, in Acts chapter five, we're about to see things change. What we're gonna see is the reality of what it means to partner with God on his mission to restore all things, as Acts 4.21 says. So if you've got a Bible or your Bible app, go ahead and make your way to Acts chapter five. And as we do, I wanna set the scene for what we're gonna read because what we've seen so far through the book of Acts is um, the God at work in a lot of different ways in the church. And we've talked about some of these ways. In Acts chapter two, for instance, we talked the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and we talked about some of the things that changed in that moment, that people were empowered by the Spirit and that caused them to um, wanna get together every day. So they gathered together in their homes and they uh, prayed together, they studied the word together. But one of the things we didn't talk about was how that Holy Spirit coming into their lives impacted their generosity. Because what we see in Acts chapter two, there's this radical generosity that happens and the end of Acts chapter two tells us that all the believers shared everything in common. Right? They're, they're being generous with one another. So nobody had any want. Then in Acts chapter four, we see the same thing happen. Peter and John are set free from jail. They gather with the believers. They pray together for boldness. We talked about this last week. And the Holy Spirit shows up and there's this other great show of generosity. But this time we're told specifically about a man named Joseph. Now Joseph is a guy who sold a piece of property he had and he gave 100% of the proceeds to the temple. He gave it to the church. Uh, and I know people who have this kind of generosity because back in 2020, we started an initiative called Greater. Uh, we talked about, we've talked about this a few times uh, since it's ended, but I've t I talked to people who were ready to sell stocks and bonds, who were ready to sell property. I talked to one guy who was gonna sell his motorcycle to give it to Greater and uh, give the proceeds to the church. And it feels good to be able to be generous that way. It blesses us, it also blesses the Lord. And for Joseph, he kind of displayed what would become the new standard for generosity in the church. See, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people, you may remember this, to give a tenth or a tithe to uh, the temple, to bring it to the temple. Um, but in the New Testament, the stakes are raised. Joseph raises the stakes. The New Testament church is all in and Joseph is a reflection of this generous lifestyle. So seemingly as a result of this action, he makes this generous gift and we find out his name is changed from Joseph to Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. And if we're not careful, we can start to think that maybe it's because of this one big gift that Joseph's name gets changed. But I, in fact, I think Luke tells us a lot about the character of Barnabas here. See, in first century Israel, and in fact, throughout the Old and New Testament, names had immense meaning. Okay, I don't think names mean as much today. Um, you guys know I have two daughters, Grace and Audrey. They both are tr pretty traditional names, pretty traditional spelling. Some of you have kids with much more interesting names. Um, in fact, sometimes it seems like people just be throwing letters together to see what looks good, right? Um, <laughs> I saw this tweet a couple weeks ago that I just loved, helping my daughter write Valentine's Day class, and I think we may have misspelled Brinksley's name. <laughs> like. Just throwing letters together, what works? But back in the, in, in the old days, names really meant something. They had a meaning. Like they were, Names were given to someone with a specific meaning in mind. And any time that we see in Scripture that a name is changed, 
It's changed for a very specific reason. We see it in the Old Testament with Abram. Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Abraham means father of nations, right? And Sarai is changed to Sarah. And we, we see it with Jacob. Jacob's name means deceiver. Can you imagine naming your child deceiver when he's born? But Jacob's name means deceiver and his name is changed to Israel or wrestles with God. We see it in the New Testament when Simon becomes Peter and Levi becomes Matthew, and we're gonna see it again in a few weeks when Saul becomes Paul. In those days, a name kind of encompassed the whole of a person's character and sometimes their calling. And so it stands to reason that Joseph received his name change, not just because he made this one big generous gift, which was a very generous gift, but because he consistently displayed integrity and support of the church, okay? He was a constant encourager. Barnabas raised the bar for what it meant to support the church. And it's into this environment that our first story in Acts chapter five comes, and it's the Ananias and Sapphira. Now, while this is probably not anyone in the room's favorite story in the Bible, this is what happens when you decide to read through an entire book of scripture in a year. You get to a chapter and you go, ooh, ah, we don't want to talk about that, do we? Well, we've got to. That's what's in chapter five. And so that's what we're doing here. We're going through chapter five. And uh, so we're going to read this passage and decide, try to decipher what it tells us about the character of God. All right, that's what you want to do anytime you read scripture. Uh, I make the mistake sometimes of reading scripture, looking for me in the scripture. We need to look for God in the scripture. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look and see what this passage tells us about the character of God. Let's dive in. We're going to start in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read this big passage, and then we'll start to unpack it, okay? Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So he's deceiving the apostles. He's deceiving the church, right? Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down and died. Then the young men came and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. No, duh. <laughs> now, I don't like this story. And I'm guessing that many of you don't like it either. I mean, let's be honest. We don't like the way this plays out. Uh, 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 God striking dead a married couple while they're at church, like after they had just given this big gift, uh, it should make us a little bit uneasy. And maybe it causes you to ask questions like, well, I thought God loved everyone and would God really kill them because they were a little bit stingy? And is it really fair that they would die for one sin? Or didn't Jesus' sacrifice cover them too? 
And the answer to those questions is yes, God is a God of immeasurable love and yes, Jesus' sacrifice is able to cover any sin that you can imagine. But this is why knowing the Bible is so important and why it's really dangerous when we take one story or one passage out of context because if we know the whole Bible, and in fact, if Ananias and Sapphira had known the Old Testament, they would know that things like this have happened before. Uh, We can know, for instance, how in Joshua chapter seven, right after the Israelites enter the promised land, this is the land that God had promised to give them, and uh, God wins the battle against Jericho, and he tells the people, don't take any plunder from the people, don't take anything, don't take a single thing, and this guy named Achan, Achan uh, sees a robe and some silver and some gold, and he takes them, and his whole family dies as a result. And then in Leviticus chapter 10, right after God has given instructions for how the priests are to minister in the tabernacle, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, Leviticus 10 tells us, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now those are stories that you may not be real familiar with. Maybe you haven't read them or maybe you just didn't remember them because they didn't stick out as, boy, those are great characters, uh, great stories of God's character and grace. Um, But there's another one that you probably do know and it's from Genesis chapter three and there's some parallels here as well. This is where Adam and Eve are given practically free reign of the Garden of Eden but they're tempted to eat from the one tree that they're forbidden from And this happens, but they do, and this happens because of the influence of the serpent, Satan. And so they're exiled from the garden. And not just from the garden, but from the presence of God. Now here's what I want you to see. When Ananias and Sapphira conspired to lie about the amount of money they made, they are basically reenacting all three of these stories. In Joshua 7, Achan fell to his greed, just like Ananias and Sapphira did. Um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, dishonored God in his temple. They were in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Adam and Eve were specifically influenced by Satan. Peter says that to to Ananias. Why have you allowed Satan to influence you in this way? Look, and if we're not careful, we can make the story of Ananias and Sapphira about the gift that was given instead of about the character of the givers. And the author of Acts, Luke, makes it clear that these two chose to lie that they chose to lie about this. And it seems to me that their desire was to be honored in the church. And that's what caused them to lie about this. They wanted to appear generous on the outside, but in their hearts, they were holding back from God. And so I think if we look at this story and try to figure out what it tells us about the character of God, here's the thing I want you to see. God is less concerned with the percentage of your check that you give, your paycheck that you give, and he's entirely concerned with the percentage of your heart that you give. But here's the part that makes me the most uncomfortable about this story. I feel like Ananias and Sapphira would be welcomed in the American church. In a lot of ways, I think they'd fit right in. They could walk right in here, drop a big check in the offering box, tell us the story about how they'd sold their property for the church, and we would honor them. We'd maybe even make a video that we could show on the screen to tell their story of their great generosity and their great giving. But they did it with corrupt character. They had an unholy attitude toward a holy God. And to be honest, I think some of us have become so cozy with the notion 
that we serve a good God, that we've forgotten what it means for him to be holy. Many of us spend most of our time focusing on the amazing goodness of God and not nearly enough time thinking about meditating on the holiness of God and what that really means. Here's how A.W. Tozer explains God's holiness. He says, God is not now any holier than he ever was, and he was never holier than now. He did not get his holiness from anyone or from anywhere. He is himself the holiness. He is the all-holy one. He is holiness itself, beyond the power of thought to grasp or of word to express, beyond the power of all praise. Now, don't get me wrong, God is absolutely good and we should talk about his goodness and we should praise him for his goodness, but there's a reason the author of Proverbs wrote, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress and for their children it will be a refuge. For the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life turning a person from the snares of death. That, that fear that's mentioned there is in Acts chapter five is the same fear that's mentioned here in Proverbs 14. It's the idea of this deep reverence for God and who he is. You know, we talked last week about revival and the potential for revival. And look, I think if we really want to see revival in the church, and not just here at Genesis, but I mean the whole body of believers across the whole world, if we want to see God's presence here on earth again, it starts by regaining a healthy, fearful reverence for the Lord Almighty and his holiness compared to our sinfulness. Uh, Dr. Richard Lentz says it this way. He says, the core idea behind holiness is absolute moral purity. God is not only perfectly good, he is the very source and standard of goodness. But I love how the prophet Isaiah says it. He says it in Isaiah 6. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when you read a phrase like this, what you uh, need to understand is that in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, the way you emphasize something is to repeat it. So if you see something repeated, it's like putting a very in front of it, right? So if I'm walking down the street and I fall into a hole, I might twist my ankle, but if I'm walking down the street and I fall into a whole hole, I might fall in up to my waist. And if the hole in the street is a whole, whole, hole, like you're being sucked into the earth, okay? It's enormous because you're repeating something, you're emphasizing it. There is a, uh, and, and, and Isaiah says that God isn't holy. He isn't holy, holy. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. There's a distance, like a separation between his character and our character. And for Ananias and Sapphira, their, their greed and their deception served to emphasize that separation. Now, I'm just gonna tell you that if somebody died in our church during a service, we'd probably take a break. <laughs> we'd probably stop. We probably see what was going on, take a breather, lay low for a while. Let's just, let's just sit and heal for a while. But that's not what they did. That's not what happens here. We'll go on. Verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Uh, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. 
Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. This is what we see again. The Holy Spirit is acting and the church is growing. And then verse 16 tells us that crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. So what did the church do after this tragic story? They kept calm and carried on, right? They kept doing what they were called to do. They stayed obedient to the command Jesus had given them, go make disciples. And they let God take care of the rest. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to this approach here from the apostles. They refused to get distracted by what was happening around them. They kept their eyes focused on Christ and on his mission. And once again, it got them in trouble. In verse 17, Uh, Luke goes on. He says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. Now, obviously, Luke doesn't give us a lot of clarity about what jail is like back then. He would have assumed that his first century readers would understand. But I think there are a couple things we can safely assume. Number one, it's probably not a nice place. Um, Probably not. Uh, the condition is probably pretty rough. Later in Acts 16, we learn that some of Jesus' followers were arrested. Their feet were fastened in stocks. In other words, they weren't just like put in a room, but they were chained to a wall. Uh, in fact, we also hear about the Apostle Paul being chained to a prison guard 24 hours a day. So I think, you know, it's not the JW Marriott. It's not a very nice place. Um, but the other thing we know, based on what we've seen and read in Scripture, what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts, is that likely the apostles were praying and worshiping all through the night in the jail. Uh, This is what happens. Across the first four chapters, we've seen how important prayer is to the church, and we've seen what happens when they prayed. It makes sense that in jail, through that night, not knowing what the morning held, that they spent their time praying and worshiping rather than wringing their hands nervously. This is a great tactic, by the way, whenever you're anxious about anything. Whenever you have some kind of fear, some kind of distress, even if you're in real trouble. I have some friends that uh, several years ago were in Haiti for a mission trip. And in the middle of the night, um, some gunmen broke into their compound. It was locked, it was fenced off, but some gunmen broke into their compound looking for money. And when they didn't immediately turn over the money, they held them hostage at gunpoint. And my friends, a couple of them in the front, they were very calm. They started negotiating with their captors, but in the back, much of the group was singing worship songs together. And this lasted for a few hours, and after hours, eventually they were able to resolve the situation and the men left. Um, But that act of worship and prayer really put them in the right mindset. So I'm guessing that's what's happening with the apostles. They're worshiping, they're praying, and as they do, the helper shows up. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. And so at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. The apostles wasted no time in being obedient to this angel of the Lord. Now, did they know it was an angel of the Lord? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Did they know it wasn't uh, one of the guards that had just come and unlocked the door? I don't know. Did they think they were being deceitful? I don't know about that. All I know is they knew they were being obedient. Somebody comes and says, now go teach. And what do they do? They go and teach. And as soon as they're able to get into the temple courts, they're teaching people about Jesus and about the resurrection. And as you can imagine, when the Sanhedrin found out about it, 
they weren't very happy. Here we go again. This is Acts chapter 4 all over again in Acts chapter 5. So verse 25, then someone came and said, hey, look, the men, what a tattletale, right? Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Is that what you wanted them to do? Is that what you had planned for when you put them in jail? Did you want them to come back out and teach in the temple courts? They're doing it again. You told them not to say that name, and you know what? They're out there saying that name again. Verse 26, at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Friends, when we live boldly, it is bound to bring opposition and eventually persecution. Uh, Jesus told his followers that he came to give us abundant life. He didn't say easy life. But when we sign up for that abundant life, things are eventually going to get hard. We'll draw the wrong kind of attention, maybe from friends or from coworkers or from family or even from other students. It could lead us to being excluded or ridiculed. But you have to decide if it's worth it to be obedient to Christ. But... If we're emboldened by the Holy Spirit, it will lead us to a kind of holy defiance that reflects the character of God into this world, into his creation, and draws people to him. It's exactly what we see in this chapter. Look at their response, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, I love this phrase, we must obey God rather than human beings. And from there, Peter launches into this similar discourse that he gave in chapter 3. He placed the blame for Jesus' death squarely on the shoulders of the leadership here. Uh, What we see from Peter is that once again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he courageously confronts the power structure of the day, the same people who arrested Jesus in the middle of the night and brought him to be tried on this mock trial. And the people get angry. They're furious because he's blaming them for killing Jesus, but they can't decide what to do. So this may be helpful for you to understand about the Sanhedrin. This isn't like a homogeneous group of guys. This is basically largely made up of two uh, different groups, the group of Pharisees who uh, taught strict observance of the law, and then the Sadducees who were kind of the representatives of Rome in the place. They were the Jewish collaborators with Rome. And these two groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, didn't get along. And so they couldn't reach an agreement for what to do with these guys. And so finally, somebody speaks up with an idea. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. Now, Gamaliel, this is a fascinating guy. Uh, He's one of the most respected people of the day, Scripture tells us. And in fact, if you were to do a Google search on Gamaliel, if you could figure out how to spell it, first of all, um, what you would find is there are many scholarly articles about his prominence in first century Israel and how important he was in the leadership of the Jews. When he spoke, people leaned in. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And in this case, what he had to say kind of surprised them. Because what he does is he reminds them of a couple of other instances where uprisings like this had happened. He he said, you may remember this guy, Thutis. He claimed to be somebody. He had about 400 followers. But then Thutis was killed, and eventually his followers dispersed. 
And then he talked about this other guy, Judas. Judas was a, a, a part of a group called the Zealots, Judas the Zealot. And he said, Judas led a small rebellion, but he was killed and all his followers scattered. So he said, in this case, these guys are led by some guy named Jesus. Well, Jesus is dead. So eventually, this is probably gonna go away just like all the other ones. So here's the suggestion he makes. Um, verse 38, he says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So that's his suggestion, okay? Let them go. If it's not from God, it's gonna fizzle out. If it's from God, you won't be able to stop it anyway. And do you know what happened? <laughs> of course you do, because it's 2,000 years later, and we're sitting here still talking about Jesus, right? In fact, today, all over the world, people will gather in the name of Jesus Christ, and the words of Gamaliel look so prophetic. If this movement is from God, you will not be able to stop it. Now, I don't know about you, but... Uh, here's what Gamaliel knew. The Romans ruled the world at this time. He knew that the Romans wouldn't tolerate a movement like this and they could come along and bring it to an end in an instant. Like if it got out of hand, Rome had the power, the authority, the tools, the people to come in and quash this rebellion in a heartbeat. But have you ever been to Rome? Do you know what city in the world displays more crosses than any other city? It's Rome. And these crosses don't just represent any cross. Each and every one of them represents the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross where this carpenter from a nowhere place called Nazareth hung and died. This cross where my sin and your sin was nailed to. This cross speaks volumes to the people in Rome, this place that once told people not to talk about that name. Here's what happened in verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. They ordered them not to go speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And we can kind of skip past this verse because, hey, it's great, it worked. They let him go, but not before they were flogged. And we read that and we kind of don't really know what that means. It sounds like a funny word. But if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you may remember that graphic scene where Jesus is flogged. He was uh, whipped across his chest and back. And the ends of that whip were embedded with things like glass and metal and other sharp objects, pieces of broken ceramic. And anyone who endured torture like that would have the flesh ripped from their abdomen, ripped from their back. And the goal, the intent of the torturer was to bring them just short of death. And I'm sure the apostles weren't tortured all at one time. They probably went individually, one at a time. And so each of their friends got to see their other friends be flogged, tortured, whipped. Can you imagine being one of those guys watching your friend get torn to shreds and knowing you're next? These guys would never be the same again. From this point on, every time that they bathed, every time that they swam, every time that they changed clothes, when they took their shirt off, they would be reminded of the scars, the pain, the torture that they had endured. 
for the name of Jesus. But did they complain? Verse 41 tells us the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. These words, <laughs> these verses have been very challenging for me this week, I have to tell you. I'm a little embarrassed. I have so little to lose in America. And at times I've got so little boldness. But these men didn't resent the punishment. They rejoiced that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It sounds insane. A knight in jail, dragged in front of a corrupt group, jealous of what these guys are doing, then whipped across their chests and back to the point of bleeding. And they're excited about this all because of a name. The very name the Sanhedrin wouldn't say, they only referred to as this man. Names are important. They carry significance. They carry meaning. And Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, God exalted him, talking about Jesus, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. The, the same name is the name in which we find our hope and strength to respond to God in obedience. It's, you know, the persecution for the church is just getting started in Acts chapter five. We got 23 more chapters of this. It's gonna get a lot harder for these guys, but here's what we need to be reminded when we follow Jesus, when we let the Holy Spirit work through us, life is going to get hard. For, for you, life as a Christian, it can be hard sometimes. God doesn't promise an easy life when we follow him. It will be a battle. But if you are in Christ, he promises his presence in your life. His spirit is living inside of you. He won't take you out of the battle, but he will be in the battle with you. Remember, there is an entire spirit realm out there of which we see very little, where there are wars being fought all around us right now, and the person who's going to win the war is God, and God is on your side. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is living inside of you through his Holy Spirit, and all he asks is that you be obedient and trust him to take care of the rest. Let's pray, and then we're gonna close with one last song to celebrate the goodness of God. Lord, I am thankful uh, that you are on the side of your people, that uh, even when life is hard, when we're in a battle, uh, Lord, when it feels like things are going the wrong way, we can have confidence that you are with us. Sometimes it feels like we're fighting an uphill battle. It feels like the world has turned against us because of our faith, because of our beliefs, because of the things that we hold true that culture may say, well, that's kind of old-fashioned, that's not right anymore, that doesn't work anymore. But God, we know that your ways and your principles are always good. And that I want to be able to just trust you to keep calm and carry on, to, to keep looking forward, to keep making disciples the way you've commanded us to do. Father, we need you. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we need to know that your words were true, that you are who you say you are. We need to know that when we're in the battle, we can have confidence that you are at our side, that you are fighting alongside us. And so, God, would you go with us this week?
Would you remind us of that? Would you tell us that you are on our side? Would you reveal yourself to us, maybe in a new way, God, so that we can have the confidence to move forward and uh, be soldiers for you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.